We are in 1 Peter. Considering how we must live as followers of Jesus Christ, facing hostility at times in our world, and yet always steadied by grace. And this morning, we recognize that our allegiance to Jesus Christ means that we will be different in the way we approach marriage. Our allegiance to Christ, because we're followers of Jesus, means or dictates that the way we go about marriage will be different from the world. Following God's instructions to husbands and wives will make you look like a foreigner. Actually, it won't be long before using the terms husband and wife will make you seem a bit strange in our culture. So this morning we listen to our text, God's word to us regarding the pilgrim life as a spouse. So here our text, 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll read the first seven verses. The word of the Lord to us this morning is this. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So we begin this paragraph regarding... Pilgrim living as a spouse. I want to give a couple of introductory thoughts. Number one, I am keenly aware that there may be some good-natured ribbing about being called Lord uh, at the conclusion of the sermon. I certainly understand that. Uh, The nature of the word is that we don't use it much other than in the context of addressing God as Lord. So I know our habit in culture and society is not to call each other my lord or my lady. Um, That's certainly understandable, but let the humor be found in the fact that the word seems foreign to uh, our daily relationships. But a word of caution, lest we start believing that God's idea here of submission is somehow outdated, like the expression, my lord or my lady. Number two. This is not the Bible's only teaching on marriage. There is much more on the topic throughout the Bible, but this is the portion that God wants us to hear today. So let me encourage you to set aside any objection to say, well, well, somewhere else it says that, yes, I know. Um, But God's given us this passage this morning, so let us feel the full weight of anything here 
that may tend to draw out of us resistance. Number three, in a biblical conversation about men and women, or specifically husbands and wives, it is helpful for us to remember two principles that are rooted in creation. They're not here in the text necessarily, but I want them to be at least a backdrop for any conversation you will have, and there will be many of them in our society now, uh, regarding men and women. So two fundamental principles of creation. Number one, and these aren't on your notes, but if, if they're helpful to you, jot them down. The equality of personhood. Men and women are made in the image of God. The Genesis account says man, as in mankind, was made in God's image, and then it repeats with more specificity, male and female he created in his image. So there is the equality of personhood that is foundational to building any discussion biblically about men and women. The equality of personhood. They're made in the image of God and they share equally in salvation. So the, the, the passages that speak of in Christ, there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, in no way eliminates those distinctions. It simply says there is equality of men and women, Jew and Greek, any other distinction, in God's eyes, and they all have equal access to God's redemptive plan. So the equality of personhood, number one. Number two, the distinction of roles. The distinction of roles, specifically in marriage. God designed an order of authority, which doesn't threaten, number one, equality of personhood, nor does it imply any inferiority. With those two creation principles, and by that I mean found in Genesis 1 and 2, echoed in Genesis 3, even in the language of the curse, with those two principles, you are ready to begin talking about men and women in the home, in the church, in society, um, but those two are fundamental, and keep coming back to those and find agreement there, even when you think maybe you don't find agreement with another believer in some conversation. And then finally, number four, not everyone here is a husband or a wife. So do we dismiss you from the room to, you know, the, the lower lobby for fun and games? No. Uh, many of you are husbands or wives. Some of you will be husbands or wives. And if that is not God's plan for you, then it is good for you to hear what God is expecting of your brothers and sisters in Christ because though you are not married, it does not mean you could never speak to someone regarding God's word on their marriage and their relationships. Uh, there is still a mutual benefit that is ours in understanding each other and what God expects of us. And so the text is for all of us. Obviously, some of the application will be quite specific as it is addressed to the husband's and the wives. Our big idea is simply this, following Jesus must shape our approach to marriage. And more and more, as the Judeo-Christian ethic falls away from our society, there will be this little remnant of those who still hold to biblical views of marriage uh, that are going to seem more and more peculiar. Ready yourself for that and just embrace that as the very theme of Peter's letter to the church. 
He's saying, I know you feel like outsiders. Living for Christ will seem like you're different, and it's because you are. So let's embrace that. Let's commit ourselves to being better husbands and wives, and rather than resisting what we hear this morning, uh, let's just say, you know, that's true. I can do better here. I can do better. And so may it be your prayer that the Holy Spirit would, would show you where you can change. Peter begins with instruction for wives. And let me say, while there are six verses given to wives and one for husbands, this has nothing to do with our capacity for reading or our attention span, all right? It's just the way that it comes down. And really, there's only one command given to the wives. It's just expressed in three different ideas we'll look at. And then although there's only one verse given to husbands, it is loaded with requirements that raise the bar quite high for men. So, so don't feel there's any imbalance here. Uh, recognize God is asking much of you as a Christian wife uh, for his glory. And God is asking much of you as a Christian husband for his glory. But first, instructions for the wives those that are married here among us, and those who in God's plan may be. The text begins with that word, be subject to your husbands. We've seen this, be subject. Your, your text may read, be in submission. The word means to arrange in order under. So it's our picture of an authority, and everything else falls under that authority in its place. It implies design, and as we said, a creative design even for this uh, institution of marriage. So wives, be subject to your own husbands. There's a helpful pronoun there in your own husbands. Wives, you don't submit to other husbands in the church. A lot of times in the debate about women and their role and men, we kind of confuse all of our terminology and we start saying, well, women have to submit to men and that's not fair. Well, no, women don't submit to men. Women submit to their own husbands. Uh, now, if we're talking in the context of the church, certainly we believe men should be in that role of pastor or elder and there would be a place for submission. But, but as the husband of Carrie, you don't submit to me in the way I would think a house should be run. Now, obviously, as, as one of the pastors, there could be spiritual authority in some matters, but take the pastors out of it, so to speak, and think of other men in the congregation. Wives, you don't submit to them. You submit to your own husband. And then this idea of submission begins to unfold. I think first it unfolds by asking wives to submit as a way of life. Twice in verses 1 and 2, Peter uses the word conduct. In verse 1, conduct is contrasted with words. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they're not believers, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Conduct is important. The text is not saying that a wife could never speak Bible truth. The text is not saying that somebody is saved apart from the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Peter's point is 
women, wives, align yourself under your husband. And even if they're not a believing husband, by your conduct, by your application of God's truth to your life and being holy and respectful, you may draw your husband to the faith that you have. Peter's point is you don't nag your husband every week to go to church to the point that he's infuriated by your faith and your Christianity. You're not doing the Christian faith any favors by pushing it in the face of your unbelieving husband and always telling him the outline of every sermon and why he should have been there and what he should have heard. And Peter's saying there's a better way. There's a way that fits with the theme of your role of submission. And it doesn't mean you never say anything. It simply means there's a contrast between I will talk my husband into the kingdom or I will show him the sweetness and joy and peace of living for this king. So the first use of conduct is in contrast with words. In verse 2, it is conduct described as respectful and pure. Now, here again, this word respectful is the word for terror and fear, generally reserved for our response to God. And so what we conclude is that the respect the wife gives to the husband is because of her respect for God. It's the fear of God that is causing her to act as she does. The wife should respect her husband not because he is respectable, but because she fears God. And suddenly this takes a lot of the argument out of the conversation. Because wives don't need to be saying, well, if only my husband were more fill in the blank, then I could be submissive to him. The text is simply saying with the word for fearing God, saying, let your fear for God be evident in your respect for your husband. Let your respect for God be evident in the way you respect your husband. It's not about him. Stop making it all about the authority. And if they're what they should be, I'll respect them. That's not true in the paragraph about government. It's not true in the paragraph about masters. And now it's still not true about the paragraph to wives. De the demand is not perfection of authority. And if that box is checked, you submit. Peter is saying, even if your husbands don't obey the word, respect them because of who God is. Some of you have believing husbands and you're still waiting for them to be everything they should be and then you'll respect them as you should. But you're justified in some resistance because they're not doing what they should be. They're not the spiritual leader they should be. I don't want to say who cares because we should care and God cares how they live. But for your mindset, stop looking at your husband. Look at God. And submit to God by submitting to your husband. When they see your respectful and your pure conduct, that's the word for holy. Now, they may not esteem it as an exact match with the holy character of God, and they see that in you. But an unbelieving husband should see something of right response, of purity, of, of right living, 
submit as a way of life. You shouldn't need to tell your husband that you're being submissive. It should be evident. It should be evident. So submit as a way of life. The emphasis on conduct, not words necessarily. Number two, wives, same instruction, submit. But in verses three through five, we we want this submission to be from the inside out. From the inside out. Look at verse three. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The true beauty of a wife is not external glamour, but internal meekness. Meekness is a word that means strength, but strength that's under control. The old extra-biblical Greek illustration of meekness, the way it would be used, would be of a massive stallion that maybe a soldier or a, 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 a ruler would ride on, and it was this massive horse with enormous strength, but with the little bridle, it was completely controlled. Strength under control. It's interesting that even as the text speaks of a woman's spirit being gentle and quiet, one of those words is our fruit of the spirit for meekness. It's it's not saying, oh, they have nothing to offer and they're weak. It's actually saying there is gifting and there is strength there. There may be great resolve. There may be great ideas. There may be great, great valor and courage, but it needs to be under control to maximize its beauty because of God's plan to arrange under authority. It doesn't say that's less of a virtue because now it's under authority. No, it maximizes that virtue by saying, put it in the place where God wants it. It's from the inside out. When we read that adorning should not be external, the braiding of hair, let me just look around right? Gold jewelry, Mm. survey the crap. The idea here is not it's a problem to braid your hair or to wear gold jewelry. Otherwise, we face a real dilemma in the wearing of clothing, which is third in the list, right? We're not saying don't do these things. We're saying don't let them be the definition of femininity, what what a woman should be, the beauty of a wife, That's why that word external is is there in the text. Don't don't make the focus be what is presented on the outside with the, the decorations. This is a call to prioritize true beauty. It's called imperishable or unfading beauty, which is defined as the, the gentle and quiet spirit, namely submission. Without submission, we might be looking at a ring of gold in a pig's nose, Proverbs tells us in chapter 11. That beauty in a woman without discretion, the external beauty is, is just that little ring of gold. It, yeah, it catches the eye. It's, it's, a, it's beauty, but in the whole package, it does not work. 
because there's something greater than the, the external beauty that catches the eye. It's the character that carries that beauty. Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord should be praised. It's the exact emphasis of Peter on the internal adorning, the the inside-out working of beauty. And it's called a quiet or gentle spirit. The opposite is a heart that's always pushing against authority. While the text sets it up as external dressing up or internal dressing, the opposite is really internal beauty or lack of submission to the husband. Because that's what a a gentle and quiet spirit is. It's, It's the description of be subject to your husband. So a heart that pushes against authority, the heart that considers submission as a necessary evil of Christianity because it's there in the Bible, that heart is the heart that isn't beautiful on the inside. Note, please, in our thinking that this is not the same as personality. I'm not talking about extroverts and introverts. I'm not talking about someone who is who is a louder person on the volume of decibels than someone else. I'm not talking about women who are, you know, very soft-spoken and have very little to add to a conversation or those who have lots of ideas in their home. It it has nothing to do with personality. This is a spiritual matter. It's not a gentle and quiet voice or a gentle and quiet mind, but a gentle and quiet spirit. How do you see yourself having stepped into the role of wife, the the contract, the covenant of marriage? How do you see yourself in response to God's instructions for that position? Gentle and quiet is not even strictly a feminine description. It is a description of submission. Jesus was defined as gentle and meek or lowly. Almost the exact words Peter uses to assign the wife's role of submission. So no wonder Peter adds, these virtues are precious in God's sight. These virtues are Christian virtues, but these Christian virtues are essential to the definition of submission for wives in the role that God God has called them to. So gentle and quiet, see it as a restatement of verse one, the idea of submission. It's why in verse five, he just goes back to using the word submitting. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves And he doesn't say with a gentle and quiet spirit, which was the definition of adorning before. He just says by submitting. Because the gentle and quiet spirit equals submission. So if submission seems like a bad word to you, then grab up the other two. Gentle and quiet spirit. And focus on making sure that's what your life matches as the mirror of God's word. Submit 
from the inside out. It's, it's a heart issue. It begins in the heart, and it's evident then on the outside. Third, submission is an act of faith. Verse 6. Verse 6 is an illustration that's added on to an explanation. The instruction is, adorn yourselves on the inside with a gentle and quiet spirit. The explanation, verse 5, this is how holy women have always done it. The definition of a holy woman, a spiritual woman, is someone who is submissive to their husband. And now the illustration, as Sarah submitted to Abraham. But the text says something different. As Sarah obeyed Abraham. So I just want to be clear here. We, we need not make any distinction between submitting to your husband and obeying your husband. That argument is made in the debate that rages, especially even in the church these days, that women aren't children. We don't have to obey our husbands. Well, the text is, is clear. You do. But it's the same as submitting to them. And yes, anybody who looks at the scriptures will recognize there is a difference between the way children obey parents and the way a wife obeys her husband. Okay, the relationship is different and, and there should be the wisdom and maturity to recognize that without this silly argument that says, women don't have to obey their husbands. I'm not gonna do that because that's not what it means. We're not children. Well, then, then come to the Bible and see what it says about marriage and see what it says about parenting. But don't just pick and choose the way we're gonna look at this. Sarah submitted to her husband, and that's renamed as she obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, this goes back to Genesis chapter 18 when they find out they're going to have a son, and there's this glimpse of Sarah, and she's not at her best moment here. Uh, and she kind of just laughs and, and makes a reference to finally having a child by her husband, my Lord, she calls him. And it's this moment of really unbelief. And yet at her worst, she was still as a way of life and as a mindset using an expression of submission. So the, the expression, the one time we're told she calls him Lord is not this extended story of her working through her submission to Abraham. It was really just, it was her way of life. And even when she wasn't at her best, she recognized this is where God's plan had her. It was her expression of faith in God's plan, even when she didn't really manifest outstanding faith. So it's a fascinating consideration to think of Sarah as being this example when at that moment she wasn't at her best. Just reminds us again, wives, submission is a way of life. It's not something you encounter once in a while. It should just be the spirit that you have. You know where God has asked you to live out all of your gifts and strengths. It's an act of faith. So Sarah calls Abraham Lord. And then the text says, by way of application, you are her children. Speaking to you, wives, you are in that same lineage of Sarah, you kind of have that same spiritual DNA. You're just like her. If, if, it says, you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. 
Those seem like really broad terms if we don't stay right here in the context of what Peter has been talking about, submission. So you are just like Sarah when you do good. What is the goodness Peter is talking about in the text? Wives, submit to your husband. And he describes it as this adorning yourself. He, he helps you think of it as a gentle and quiet spirit, not necessarily gentle and quiet in word or in gifting and such. It's all about the submission. So the doing good is if you have a meek and quiet spirit, if you submit to your husband, you're just like Sarah. And then he says, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Well, what in our text is unfolding that is frightening? I don't think he's saying if you do good and don't fear anything that's frightening, like, oh, a diagnosis of, of cancer, or, or what if my husband dies and I'm left alone? Those are valid fears that could come at us, but Peter's not just throwing the door open and saying, hey, you're just like Sarah if you don't have any fear. Somehow this being fearful has to be tied to our theme of submitting to a husband. And I don't submit to a husband. So I might not get all the fears, but I submit to other authorities that are imperfect and I can begin to imagine how this could get difficult. Some of you have bosses that probably shouldn't be in that position. Maybe even you should be, but you submit to them. And at times you could be thinking, ah, that might not be the best direction to take the company, but you're not in the position to make that call. And they are. And you could see that that's not going to end well. I could imagine for a wife being asked to submit to a husband, she could easily have fears come into her mind, well, but I, I know what he's going to do in this situation. Or I've seen him fail at this before. Or what if he never leads? Or what's going to happen to my children if my husband doesn't lead in devotion, so I'd better make him do it? And Well, there are a lot of fears that could come when God's asking you to submit to a flawed human being. But apparently that's what Sarah did, and that's apparently what holy women have always done. And you will follow in the footsteps of godly women when you have a meek and quiet spirit, you do good, and when you don't fear what could go wrong in this scenario and use all the what-ifs to explain why you're not going to obey God in the moment. That's the great argument. Against wives submitting, we hear it in Christian circles. You certainly hear it in the unbelieving circle as to why Christianity is old-fashioned. It's, well, wives submitting to husbands could be a problem because husbands could treat their wives poorly. Well, just be clear, this is an argument that says, since people are sinners, I won't obey God. It just doesn't make any sense. It's not logical for the Christian to say, well, because someone else isn't right, I'll just go ahead and disobey God. No, wives, I recognize there's a great weight that comes with submitting to a husband, and that weight is what if? What if? God knows that. And we've addressed before, let's wander way over to the fringe here, the exceptions, where, yes, other men Family should intercede. The church should intervene. There may be cases where the, the, 
the treatment of a woman is so bad that there must be intervention. We all understand that. But rather than making that the norm and saying, because of that, wives shouldn't submit to husbands. That's, that's a logical fallacy that could be captured in throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We know that's a reality. Some of you have tasted that in family or something. And we'll address that with all the wisdom it needs in its moment. But Peter isn't even addressing that right now. He's simply saying, here's the general principle. Here's what it means to enter into marriage and be a wife. You arrange yourself under in an order that God has designed in creation. So just feel that weight this morning, wives. If you honestly want to talk about some of those exceptions and and the what ifs, we can do that. The Bible gives us the, the wisdom to do that, and we're not hiding from that argument. We just don't want to rush there from this text that just says, you need to reign in your spirit and order it under the husband. It's an act of faith. Rather than fearing how it might go poorly, trust God's command for your life and your role as a wife. Submission is an act of faith. There's a word of hope that was tucked away at the beginning of this charge to women to be subject to their husbands. I think it is to all women, believing husbands or unbelieving husbands, because of those words, even if. That's the exception. Wives, submit to your husbands. And even if that husband is an unbeliever, he's unjust, he's not fair, kind of like the masters that were described earlier for the slaves. Even if he's not everything he should be, you continue down this path of obedience to God, reverencing God in such a way that it's evident in the way you treat your husband. Because they may be one, the word is, without a word by the conduct of their wives. There may be a way that God uses your conduct to draw your husband to an understanding of the faith. It's not apart from the Holy Spirit, but if you're asking how will the Holy Spirit draw men to salvation, it may be through the testimony of the conduct of a godly wife. So be encouraged. God even tucks away that word of hope that says, you know, God can do whatever he wants to do in your husband. So have hope that your sweet and godly spirit in the home is winsome. It's not a promise. It's not a rubber-stamped guarantee. But it's the truth that goes with the principle. God can do what he needs to do with that man that you find it hard to submit to. So look beyond him. Look through him to the perfect authority of God who says not only you submit, but also says you can trust me. I've got this. While it's only one verse, let's consider three instructions for the husband as well. They come to us this way. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Number one, men, we can put aside the last six verses because you're not called to make your wife submit. You won't find that imperative in the scriptures. 
That's for them to wrestle with. Here's what you have to do. And again, just like the wife could say, if only my husband were, I would be. We as men can do the same thing. If my wife would just cooperate and be respectful, then maybe I could actually do. No, that's not the way it works. You report to God on his checklist here. Um, Your wife doesn't become your excuse for not being obedient. Number one, demonstrate love that is tailored by knowledge. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, or the Greek words are too, according to knowledge. Based on the knowledge that you are hopefully gleaning, live with your wife. Now, some have argued that living with your wife according to knowledge or understanding is according to your knowledge of God. I would argue against that just because in the expression of loving our wives, it's almost implied in the very concept that that kind of love is God's love. In addition, the word here, live with your wives, that living with is in some context used for marital intimacy. So others sometimes apply this very specifically to that realm, which I think is also missing the application. I think this is a general principle that the way that we go about life, all of life, be it intimacy and be it shopping at Walmart and how to do food on the table and where to go on vacation and how much time to spend on fun stuff and how to do any kind of family spiritual time, all of that. You're to live with your wife in this most intimate relationship, which has nothing to do with sexuality. I'm I'm using intimacy as the closeness that you share as husband and wife leading this family. That kind of life together, that special closeness is the weight handed to the husband. Live with your wife according to understanding or knowledge. In other words, every husband in this room receives the same instruction, the same command, but it's different for every one of us because it's determined by your spouse. You understand that person better than anybody else. So you should live with that person better than anyone else. Demonstrate love that is tailored by, that is expressed by this Wisdom, this understanding, this knowledge. You seek to understand how best to live in this close relationship of marriage. That, that implies all kinds of effort. That implies academics, uh, the idea of knowledge. It implies learning, observation. For a lot of us, trial and error, right? We, that's not the way to do it. Uh, I need to find a better way. Um, That's what the husband is asked to do. Uh, Demonstrate love specifically tailored to a particular woman, the wife. Number two, demonstrate strength that is expressed in honor. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. So there are two elements at work here, honor and strength weakness. We usually focus right away on the wife. Weaker vessel, oh, what does that mean? 
any answer gets you in trouble, right, it seems. And in a sense, there's some validity there because it, 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 it like over-focuses. And, and how does that help the man? Well, that's why I, I couched it this way. The man is to demonstrate strength because if there is a weaker vessel, there is a stronger vessel. One of them somehow ascribed to femininity, one of them to masculinity. So let's make sure we understand what kind of strength is at work here and then see how it's supposed to be expressed. Because what this text is telling us is that the strength of manhood is best demonstrated not in control, but in honor. I'm not saying there isn't an element of control that comes by authority. The nature of the word subject is to arrange under authority. That implies some kind of ability to dictate something, to control. But the problem we're most fearful of is the abuse of male headship that that just seeks control and is expressed only in, I get it my way. And Jesus addressed this to his disciples. He says, you know how the Gentiles lord their authority over you, but it shall not so be among you. Let him who is great among you in the position of power and control, let him be your servant. And he wasn't saying, oh, husbands, you're not the head after all. We're turning this upside down. No, he was saying your approach to your position of authority should be upside down, where you understand your role is to serve and to honor everyone, rather than to impose control by force. Jesus was talking to his disciples, the Jews, who had been completely dominated by the power and the force and the control of Rome. So when he said the Gentiles do this, they knew exactly what he meant. The Roman crucifixion was the great example of Roman power and control. You do it Rome's way. Well, men, let's stop focusing so much on how exactly our wives are weak so we can prove it to them and start trying to prove the masculine strength that is expressed in honor. Men are to honor or value women and specifically their wives. And that man's honoring is due in part to an understanding of a woman's weakness. So what is it? I don't think it's mental as if they are different in intellectual capacity. I don't think it's spiritual. Otherwise, men would just make better Christians, right? That doesn't seem to be the way the Bible unfolds spirituality. I take this as a general principle of biological or physical weakness. Now, I I could be taught on this, and more study might prove some other nuance. But right now, I would stand convinced that this is a physical, biological weakness. The male gender is stronger, not without exception, but as the general reality of biological design, bones, joints, muscle mass, testosterone. It's all the language you're hearing, even from unbelievers today, for why men shouldn't compete in women's sports. It's as if suddenly there's this great awakening to the reality that they're different. Well, if the difference comes to us through the text as this expression of weakness, 
and why men should avoid the temptation to exercise their strength and control and rather do it in honor, then let's embrace that the Bible maybe got this one right, okay? And even the world is seeing that there is something about the general concept of the male frame being more equipped in some kind of strength. It's really not about demeaning anyone as much as it is stating the general way things are and because of that, how sin can affect that for the wrong. Men lording strength over women when God calls them to demonstrate honor and to use all of their strength to esteem. This is where the ancient ideas of chivalry come from. You read about the Titanic, and you'd better realize that women and children in the lifeboats isn't a disgusting chauvinism. It's the biblical reality that strength at its greatest is demonstrating honor to others. It infuriates me to think of the world so demeaning women that it, that it is repulsed by men who honor them. Some of you have held the door for a woman, a woman in public and been scorned for it. How dare you do that? As if there's something inherently wrong with honoring someone. And there is in the world's eyes. It's the spirit of Antichrist. It's the spirit that says, I will not accept what God has designed. And here in the church, we're simply being told, men, if you're going to get this right, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then you must be a different kind of husband. Even if you take your lumps from the world for being old-fashioned and chauvinistic, show your strength, show your masculinity, not by throwing your weight around and controlling, but by honoring. That's what you're called to do in your marriage. And men, since we likely won't be loading any lifeboats this week, Let's find some other way to show honor. Let's find some way to use our energy and our strength to honor our wives. Third, demonstrate commitment that is anchored in grace. This word commitment flows from the words, heirs with you. Husbands, live with your wives with understanding, showing honor to them since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. As persons made in the image of God, there is equality. In Christ, as believers, there is equality. In light of the coming inheritance in our time in heaven, there is equality. So husbands, recognize that equality on that level of theology. Recognize that you and your wife, though in marriage arranged in an order of authority, are joint heirs of the grace that enables this life. Are you demonstrating the kind of grace to your wife that God has demonstrated to you? Stop thinking your wife must merit your favor. We, we do this without even thinking about it. It's just the little tit-for-tat kind of responses, and because that wasn't quite right, well, I'm just not going to go out of my way to, to be kind or gentle. We have to stop insisting that our wives please us have to merit our favor. They are joint heirs of this grace that we've all tasted 
and are supposed to now use to live life together. The grace of life. You're in this together. It's teamwork. That's why I say it's a commitment that is anchored in grace. When it's that kind of relationship, you're, you're not every day spending your time reinforcing that I'm the one in charge. You have to do it my way. I'd like to say that would never come up in a marriage. It may. It may come to some point of disagreement where God's going to say, you got to submit to the husband and he's got to do something. He's got to decide. But this third little admonition of your joint heirs in the grace of life calls us to the kind of marriage where that kind of ultimatum where he has to choose and make the decision is so rare that it really becomes almost lost in the discussion. Demonstrate grace or else. It's interesting though, the the instruction to wives was kind of surrounded by that word of hope. Come on, women do this as to the Lord because God can take care of that husband and he might even use that. Very hopeful, kind of that building up for the hard task of submission and for the husbands, it's kind of like love your wives or else. It makes me feel like maybe I have a thick head and it needs to just be laid right out there for me. Do this so that your prayers may not be hindered you know, do you know how much is in the Bible about our prayers being heard? You read the Psalms and it seems like every Psalm you come to is about hear my prayer. And, and yet here is this heavy warning that when you lose your way as a husband, you lose your hearing with God. You don't do these things. You don't work hard at living with understanding. You don't work hard at using your strength to honor and cherish. You you don't work hard at being in this together. Then God's not going to hear you. I don't care what you're praying for. It doesn't list, oh, well, there's an exception if you're praying for this. No, God's not going to hear your prayers. They're going to be hindered. And it's because you're being sinful and not giving yourself self-sacrificially to the obedience to this text. The psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Estrangements from others hinders our fellowship with God. That's why Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, if if you have something against somebody, there's no use singing songs about Christ, our hope and life and death when you can't even get along with people. Leave your gift at the altar and go fix that because it's hindering your worship. So the principle in scripture is, you can't be at odds with all these people and think you're right with God. The kind of grace that he has shown to you that draws you into reconciliation is the same grace of life that you're supposed to be practicing with people. So men, there there are gonna be days of the week and weeks of the month where you might, not feel real close to God, and you'd better ask yourself, is there anything I should be doing more to be obedient to 1 Peter 3, 7 that's causing me to feel distant or to cause me to accuse God of being distant? Demonstrate commitment 
that is anchored in grace so that your prayers will not be hindered. Well, you have the text in front of you, and you could see that Peter is very light on application. He doesn't apply this as this is exactly what it will look like in each marriage. Submission doesn't take one universal look. After all, it's a gentle and quiet spirit, not a personality, not not a, a decibel level. And so now it's imperative for us to take these principles given to wives and given to husbands and to take them and wrestle with them to see by the Holy Spirit, what will this look like in my marriage this week? Wives, God designed your strength, but he commands that it be under control. So find joy in trusting him with a quiet and gentle spirit toward that man who at times you think is the greatest thing ever, and at times you think, what was I thinking, right? But that's okay, because it's not about him. It's about your worship and obedience of God. Husbands, are you characterized by understanding? Are you characterized by honoring? Are you characterized by being gracious? Sometimes we boast ourselves on our starkness, as if manhood means be brief and blunt and harsh and tough. There's some kind of place for that somewhere, but not towards our wives. I, don't, I think we get the wrong image of Christ, thinking that he would have bullied a wife or something, or, or Peter saying, here's what Christ would have been as a husband, because here's what Christ is as the husband of a bride, the church. He loves us with understanding. He knows our frame. and He's compassionate towards us. He honors us and values us so that he would lay down his own life for us. And he gives us grace and calls us to his side to live this life. And he promises to never leave us or forsake us. He's in it with us. Husbands, that's how we're supposed to live to our wives. This text does not ask you to fix Christianity's view of the roles of husbands and wives. You could get online and find all kinds of debate about it, and maybe God will give you influence someday to weigh into those debates and help a lot of other people. But maybe today and this week, we can just focus on you and not make it about well, what about the cases of abuse? And what about the, I know they're out there and, and will we'll need to be dealt with. But right now, just start with you. The easiest thing would be to debate this on some theoretical platform with people about specific instances. But the only case study that matters is your case right now. Will you be the wife you should be and will you be the husband you should be? By God's grace, we can. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is good, it is right, it is perfect. By your spirit, will you help us to apply these principles? 
principles regarding our government, principles regarding authorities in the workplace, principles now regarding our marriage. Let us feel the sting of conviction without being defensive. Let us simply resolve that we can, by your grace, do better. We can have more of the spirit of Christ. And may we embrace our opportunity now to demonstrate Christ-likeness to the one that we say we love so much. Thank you for loving us, for giving yourself for us. Thank you for making us, your church, a bride. Thank you for being driven by your joy to endure the cross for us. Your joy being to present us faultless before the presence of your throne with exceeding joy. We have an example. Help us to follow it. We have your word. Help us to obey it. We have your spirit. Help us to yield to him. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.